Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Everybody hears the scroll being read, but very few people actually study the book. It's a good idea to study the book. And in Purim, nobody has time to study the book because we're too busy listening to it being read. But if we study it, then we are bound to have a different listening experience. Because you find out all of the subtle details that are contained within the words of the Megillah. Our goal in this class is going to be to try to study the Megillah with the commentaries of Rashi Ibn Ezra, with the classic medieval commentaries, bolstered with the Midrashim, with the sayings and teachings of our sages found in the Gemara, as well as in, in, the, in the Midrashim and various other sources, going back to the times of the Mishnah, along with the commentary of the Rishon Letzion, which is the Orachayim, the writings of the Malbim, and of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. That's the general. We, at times we'll add in other commentaries, but those will be the basic focus. Today we're going to try to get to the first four verses, which will talk to us about Achashverosh and the great big party that he made. Let's first take a, a step back. The name of the book is? The Book of Esther. Megillat Esther. Why is it called the Book of Esther? Because Esther is the major heroine. Yeah. But when you study the book, you find out that Esther actually was a guided missile. She almost entirely relied on the intuition and instruction of her uncle Mordechai. So why isn't the book called, at least, Megillas Mordechai ve Esther? He had, it would seem, at least as much to do with the story as she did. She perhaps was the boots on the ground, the, the prime actor, but Mordechai is the, the innovator. Mordechai is the one who seems to be moving everything as it unfolds. So the Rebbe once suggested that it is true that Mordechai is the catalyst for much of what Esther does. But in fact, Mordechai does not create a, a dummy who follows his instructions. Mordechai develops Esther's potential. And this is who Esther really is. Sometimes it takes a little bit of cajoling, a little bit of prodding from somebody like Mordechai, but it's Esther who does everything. And that's, uh, there's a very large lesson for us in that uh, the emphasis or the influence of a tzaddik is not simply to do it for us, but that somebody like Mordechai, a tzaddik, is able to help us reach our own potential. And Esther, therefore, represents every single Jew. And every single Jew has the power to achieve great things and to bring about Yeshua's v'neflois, wondrous salvation for Am Yisrael. Who wrote the book of Esther? <coughs> the Ibn Ezra, in his commentary, he quotes various approaches to who wrote this book. And he says, Hanochan be'enai, what is appropriate or proper in my eyes is that Hamigila Chibra Mordechai. Mordechai, in all likelihood, is the actual author of the Megillah. And Mordechai is the one who sent the Megillah all over. What happened is that the local authorities copied the Megillah in their own languages. And I, I did actually find out, doing a little bit of research, that there are many, many records from that time that are preserved. Some of them include the story of the Megillah itself. So Mordechai wrote the Megillah, and then the question becomes, why is the name of God not mentioned in the Megillah altogether? So the Ibn Ezra says, because Mordechai knew that his writings would be copied, and because he knew that every time he writes God's name, there would be the name of a deity or of a pagan idol replacing the name of Hashem, and he didn't want to cause the names or the status of idols to be raised, so therefore Mordechai omitted the name of Hashem altogether. And that's why the book of Esther is the only book of the Tanakh that doesn't mention God even once. The Maharsha says something very, very striking. In, in his Chidushim, Amesechet Chulin, the Maharsha says that the names Haman, Mordechai, and Esther are Persian names, not Jewish names. We know at least that Esther had a name of Hadassah, which is a Jewish name, a Hebrew name. And he says that the Megillah was written by the Persians. And that's why the name of Hashem is not mentioned at all. 
Now, this is very hard to understand. If you look at the words of the Masha at face value, a book of the Tanakh was written by the Persians. The Tanakh is, is, is Hashem's word. It's, it's immutable prophecy. There are other books that were written around that time which are not included in the Tanakh. The most famous is the book of the Maccabees. There's a, a book, a story, and many of the stories may be true. But eternally relevant it isn't. And prophetic it isn't. There is a book which is included in some of the Christian canons. It's called the book of Tobit. Tobit is a Jew. His name is Tuvia. And a whole story about Tuvia, which may or may not be a true story, but one thing is certain, it's not part of the Tanakh. And our sages had to select what was divinely inspired and what wasn't divinely inspired. So how do you explain then the Marsha's words that the Megillah was written by the Persians? So in an early manuscript, the Rebbe does suggest that the pshat, the likely meaning of what the Marsha says, would, would have to follow the words of the Ibn Ezra. That the Megillah originally was written in Hebrew by Mordechai. And it was translated into other languages by the Persians. And that is the reason that the name of Hashem is omitted. Having said that, as a little bit of a preface, so we know about the name of the book, and we know the authorship of the book. So let's begin our studies. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. Here you place a comma. Who Ahasuerus? He is Ahasuerus. Hamolech, who rules... Mehodu, we can translate that freely from India, although you'll soon see that this is a dispute where exactly Hodu is. V'ad Kush, once again, we'll take a, the uh, poetic liberty to translate that as Ethiopia. Sheva ve'esrim umea medina. 127 provinces. So the, the first question that we could rightfully ask is, why does the Megillah begin by telling us, Vayihi, it was, Biyimei Achashverosh. So presumably, we're trying to cast the history, so we know when this took place. Rashi says, Melech Poros Haya, he was the king of Persia. Shemolach Tachat Koresh, who ruled after Koresh, at the end of the 70 years of the Babylonian exile. The Sivse Chom explains, the reason that Rashi has to say that Ahasuerus is the king of Persia who ruled after Koresh is because historically there are a number of people who may be Ahasuerus. Some of them are called Ahasuerus. We have at least two, perhaps three people in history who were known as Ahasuerus and two of them are kings. We also have a number of kings named Koresh or Cyrus. By the way, the Ahasuerus of, of, the, of the Megillah, we're not 100% certain which, which ruler he is. Sometimes he's referred to as Xerxes in Greek. Sometimes he's referred to as Symbasis. And sometimes in our writings itself, he's referred to with a slightly changed name as Artachshasa. 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 Anyway, he, there is a fellow named Artashuhutu or something in, in Greek who shows up as well. So the question is, which Ahasuerus are we talking about? And therefore, Rashi says, <coughs> in, order, in order to understand the context of the Homi Gila, in order to understand how the story happened and what was the, the, the background of the story and how everything arrives at that conclusion, you have to understand the history. Because we have a king whose name is Darius, and we have an Ahasuerus with Dayovish, who Ahasuerus has a son named Dayovish. The problem is that there are more, there's more than one Darius. There's, there's two Dayovishes. There's a Dayovish that is prior to the building of the second base on Migdash. Then there's a Dayovish who is engaged in the building of the second base on Migdash. And because of this, the, the time that has to be placed is exactly 70 years after the first base on Migdash is destroyed. This is the Ahasuerus who rules after a Korish. There is a later Koresh. He is the Ahasuerus who rules after a Koresh. And you'll see that he rules before Darius II, before the second Dayavish. Why is this so important to know which Ahasuerus it was? The Ibn Ezra also emphasizes this is the Ahasuerus of after, after Koresh. And after Zerubbabel, who was a Sion of the house of David, 
returns to Eretz Yisrael and they try to start the second Beis Hamikdash, but it doesn't go. Everything fizzes out. The Ibn Ezra says, in my opinion, the Achashverosh, the historic Achashverosh, is this fellow, Atachshasa. And the Malchus Achashverosh is, is uh, talked about, he says, I'm going to explain in the book of Ezra how the Malchus Achashverosh evolved. Why does the Tobigila have to begin with the words, Vayhibi Meachashverosh? Because as you will see, this is what sets the stage for the story. So let me give you a little Midrashic background. The Achashverosh, who rules after the, the king whose name is Koresh, who is the king of Persia, not to be con confused with the king of Medes, who has the same name, does not actually come from royal blood. He was not an heir to the throne. At that time, the Persian Empire replaced the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar had a son, he had a grandson, his name is Belshazzar, and that empire crumbles. That empire is vanquished by the Persian Empire. Achashverosh, whose father was in charge of the royal stables, was clearly a very charismatic, a very able, and a very ruthless person who rises to power, coming from really nowhere. In order to solidify his position, Achashverosh marries a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, whose name is Vashti. So she's his ticket to greatness. Or she gives him a certain amount of validity. Once we understand that, we understand how there is a tug-of-war going on between Achashverosh and between Vashti. Where Vashti reminds him, remember, you're just a stable boy. I'm your ticket to greatness. I'm the one who puts you who, who, as, as king. But it's not really true. Because Achashverosh became the king by himself. He's a very powerful man. And he managed to usurp the throne. And he married Vashti later to solidify the throne. This is also going to help us understand the notion that there's a big party in a place called Shushan. Because the Medrash explains to us that Achashverosh moved the capital to Shushan. And the Medrash gives us two different reasons why he moved the capital. One of them is that Achashverosh had to create some kind of grandeur for himself. And there's a long Medrash that talks about him trying to emulate the throne of Shlomo HaMelech. The famed Shlomo of Shlomo HaMelech there was a pharaoh called Pharaoh Nechei who tried to go onto that throne and he was trounced from that throne miraculously and he became, he limped the rest of his life. And everybody was afraid to go on this proverbial throne of Shlomo HaMelech who was considered the greatest king of the ancient times. And so Achashverosh replicates such a throne in a city which we think is today called Shush. The city of Shush is, is, is an archaeological dig today which in 2009 the Iranian government turned into a garbage dump. Somebody was going to build a big hotel there and it was going to become a, a tourist attraction to come to the ancient city of Sushan, but it's too Jewish. <laughs> so therefore the Iranian government decided that this massive crater that, or pit that was dug to build this huge hotel, they filled it with garbage and nobody goes to Shush today. So Shush or Sus is an ancient Persian city which according to the archaeological evidence has been inhabited for 5,000 years. And it is one of the ancient cities of Mesopotamia. At some point, it became the capital city of the Persian Empire, and later it faded, it was captured, it was vanquished a number of times, and eventually destroyed. <coughs> Achashverosh is trying to create some kind of grandeur for himself. In creating this grandeur, he tries to build the throne. The throne cannot be moved from Shush, where the artisans lived, to where Achashverosh was living, and as such, he makes this radical decision to move the capital to where his throne is. And he builds the capital around this throne, or this imagined grandeur that Achashverosh is trying to create for himself. The, the uh, Or HaChayim, in his commentary, says that the words Vayihibi Achashverosh, as a rule, grammatically, whenever we look at the Chumash, or the Tanakh, it indicates, the word Vayihi indicates a trying time for the Jewish people. In Hebrew, an eight tzara, or, or days of tzarot. So therefore, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, Now the Megillah is going to be introducing a very, very difficult period for the Jewish people, which is going to be followed by a great simcha, but it starts off with a very difficult period. But the Orachayim's read on that is, that God says, because this person is going to have to make a decree against the Jewish people, because the Jewish people sinned, 
And because Hashem doesn't want the Jewish people to be vanquished by, by a people who have no standing, so Hashem says, I have to make this Ahasuerus into a great man. You forcing my hand to make Ahasuerus great. That's a Vayihi. Vayihi bime Ahasuerus. When God has to make an Ahasuerus into a King Puba, into, into, into some, some, uh, some grandiose figure because of the Jewish people, this is a sad day for all of us. The Arachayim further points out that Ahasuerus in his time was a Moshe Bekipa. He was, an, he, was an, he was an absolute monarch who had a conglomeration of many different provinces and many different countries hammered together under a single empire. And all, all of this ultimately was connected to the story of the Jewish people. In other words, the, the, the whole coming together of this conglomerate the reality that all of the countries and provinces of the civilized world at the time would be under the sway of a single individual who could issue an edict and a decree that everybody would listen to was all because of the Jewish people. So the Rebbeinu Shalelem, God then, in the Megillah, is setting the stage for what will be the greatest challenge since Galos Mitzrayim. That's how we see the story of Purim. There's a, 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 a medrash that says on the notion of 127 provinces, that Esther was a granddaughter of Sarah, and Sarah Imenu lived for 127 years, and that's why her granddaughter merited to be queen over 127 provinces. Now, it sounds very cute, but when you actually stop to think about it, it makes no sense whatsoever. The only connection between Sarah and between Esther is this numerology of 127. 127 years was Sarah's life, 127 provinces was Esther's domain, and she didn't live a wonderful life. She, she had to live in a, in, a, in a Gentile setting for the rest of her life, by the way. This is a very nice, she's a heroine, and we talk about her for that year. And then after that, the Jews moved back to Israel, and poor Esther was left for the rest of her life in a palace, living with a Gentile, living with Ahasuerus. Yiddish and Nachas she didn't have from her children, let's just say that. So what's the connection between Sarah Imenu and between Esther? How do we work that out? Especially because with regard to Sarah Imenu, it says, Kulan Shavin Latova, that Sarah Imenu lived a wonderful life. And even though it seems that her life wasn't so wonderful, you should know, in fact, that all of her life was wonderful. And it was all equally good. That's the approach, the concept of Kulan Shavin Latova. It's very hard to imagine that Esther's life was Kulan Shavin Latova. She lived a very lonely life, she lived a very sad life, and, and she really devoted herself to, to saving the Jewish people. Much later on, we're going to learn when Esther is, in, is, is being urged to go to Ahasuerus, she sends a message back to Mordechai, I'm going to go. But now, kasher avadati avadati, now I'm lost. What is the deeper meaning of that? Our sages tell us that up until that point, Esther had been coerced to live with Ahasuerus. So therefore, she wasn't guilty of committing adultery. She was a married woman. She wasn't guilty, she was forced. At this point, she's going to go by her own volition. So now at this point, she can never go back to her husband anymore. She can never return to her normal life. From this point in onward, she knows life is lost. And she says, I'm doing this for the Jewish people. I'm going to be lost. I have no hope, but the Jewish people will live. So how do you work it out? What is, what is the message of Esther and Sarah? So the Rebbe once suggested a very simple solution. He said, one of the unique things about Ahasuerus, as the Or HaChaim tells us in his commentary, is that everybody agreed. Now, you know, in that part of the world, generally people don't agree. <laughs> They're always fighting. And, and that had been the problem for centuries. The predecessor of Ahasuerus, Nebuchadnezzar, replaced an earlier monarch whose name was Sancherev. Sancherev wanted to solidify his empire. He built the first modern empire, a massive empire. What did he do? He moved everybody around. He took all the indigenous peoples out of the homes that they had lived in for a thousand or two thousand years and he sent them into exile. Because he thought by doing this, he would remove any patriotism, any jingoism that had punctuated their lives and they would forget to revolt against them. The Soviet Union held all of its different countries and all of the different provinces and territories under control with the KGB, with a fear of execution. Stalin murdered 60 million people, they say. So, so the moment that the walls started to crumble on communism and Gorbachev introduced perestroika, what happened right after? All of a sudden, Latvians appeared 
and, and, and all of a sudden Estonians appeared and Ukrainians, forget about it. It was, it was like everybody, all the patriotism that was dormant for 70 years came to life overnight. <laughs> when I was in Russia, I was the Ukrainian guards wearing the same exact as the Russian guards. So we, it's a whole story. I didn't have a visa for, for Ukraine, only had a visa for Russia. So he said, here's the visa. I said, at the visa. And the guy went crazy. He turned purple and he started to screaming, pointed to the little tiny uh, pin in his fur hat, in his shapka, which was made in Taiwan probably, that had uh, an insignia, which I couldn't even see, that said Ukraine, not Russia. And he's pointing, Eta Ukraina! Like you were some kind of idiot or something? This is, you know, you guys look exactly the same. This is Ukraine! This is not Russia! How dare you say something like that? They, they, they hate each other. They hate between the Russians and Ukrainians. Seventy years was quiet, came right out again. So Sancherov knew this, and Sancherov tried to make sure that his empire would not fragment by doing, by mixing the people all over. By the way, Sancherov wasn't successful. <laughs> his empire did fragment. And somebody else just took over his empire. So if, if it was so hard for people to get along, how are you going to have everybody to agree? Everybody is going to have the same hatred to the Jewish people. Everybody is going to be willing on one day to wipe out every single Jew. It, it's really something extraordinary. It's something that almost doesn't fit into any framework of normalcy. That's the, the connection between Sarah and between Esther. We see a commonality in being able to hammer together things which are so disparate as 127 years lived, which include all kinds of different experiences. The subtext of our sages are telling us is that that was the story of Esther. She presided over 127 provinces, which when it came to the story of Purim, all of a sudden they were all united. Maybe it's not so unusual, because when it comes to the Jews, somehow the world always manages to unite against us. But never with the same hatred. You see, it's always these varying levels. Here, 127 provinces, all different kinds of people, all came to the same agreement and all felt the same way. We're going to talk about this later when we see <coughs> some of the commentary of the Malbim. Okay, so moving along, the Pasuk says, so, Vahibi Achashverosh, Hu Achashverosh. He is Achashverosh. Hamolech who rules from Hodu all the way to Kush. So the question now is, it says that It was in the days of Achashverosh. And then the Megillah, the Megillah interjects, Hu Achashverosh, he is the Achashverosh who ruled. Now, if we have to understand who Achashverosh was, and Rashi already explained that the words is, is dating him, is telling us which time he lived in, that it's the Achashverosh who was the Melech from Hodu to Kush, and there was only one Achashverosh who had such an empire. So why does it have to interject with the words, Hu Achashverosh? It's totally unnecessary. A basic premise of any kind of biblical study is, unnecessary words don't appear. So what is the meaning of, Vahibim Achashverosh, Hu Achashverosh? Rashi says, Hu Berisho. He is the same wicked man. We, we like to think, you know, children, the children's plays, Achashverosh is just, a, you know, a, 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 a fat old dummy. He doesn't really know if he's coming or going. It's not true. He was a very shrewd and very ruthless and very wicked person. In the end, in the end, whatever, he rescinded the decree and he let the Jews, left the Jews alone. But the truth is that, that he wasn't very far from Haman. And he didn't have a problem with Haman's ideas. They, they, they resonated very well with him. Hu berisho mitchilato sofo. He is the same evil from beginning until the end. Don't fool yourself about the story. You should know it's the same Achashverosh. He looks like a man who does many different things. It's the same ruthless individual. The, the Medrash Rabbah says about this something very interesting. And perhaps Rashi is alluding to this. He says, Achashverosh killed his wife because of the advice of his friend. He killed Vashti because that's what Haman told him. And then the same Achashverosh killed his best friend because of the advice of his wife. He kills Haman because of Esther. So was he a wife abuser or not a loyal friend? <laughs> like, how did this guy function? And therefore the answer is, Achashverosh, he didn't really have a, a, a clear approach, a strategy to life. His strategy to life was very simple. It's all about me. And it's all about what's expedient at the moment. The last piece of advice he got that sounded good for him, so he did it. When his friend said, kill your wife, he killed his wife. His wife said, kill your friend, he killed his friend. It was always, he was, he was, he was, it wasn't any kind of calculated, careful, thoughtful approach to things, what's good for the kingdom, what's good for, what's, what's good for, the, for, the, for, the, for the nation. No, it's all about Achashverosh. Who Achashverosh? It's all about him. And that's the idea of true wickedness. 
True wickedness is absolute selfishness. For Achashverosh, the only thing that mattered was Achashverosh. People would die, so they would die. They would suffer, who cares? As long as Achashverosh is happy, nothing else matters. The Ibn Ezra, in his commentary on the words who Achashverosh says, this is not to be confused or mixed with the idea of, like, Avram is Avraham. Different people, they went through different stages. This, don't, 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 don't make that mistake of thinking that there's some kind of change that goes from one person. The Torah has to emphasize. And he says it is even possible that in the ancient times, the kings of Persia and Media, it's even possible that they had the name Achashverosh was kind of like an adopted name. I'm not trying to draw any necessary allusions, but you know, like when, when you become the Pope, you have to choose a name. You get a list of names to choose from, and you have to choose one of those names. So Achashverosh is one of those royal names. And there were different Achashverosh's. And that's why we have to emphasize that which Achashverosh, because there were different ones called, who all were called Achashverosh, this is the Achashverosh, like, you know, in modern English, Achashverosh the third, Achashverosh the second, <laughs> whatever it was, he was one of those Achashverosh's that wouldn't work. We say Achashverosh the third, this is supposed to be a book that's relevant for, for all time. The author of the Megillah Mordechai knows that we're going to be coming 2,000 years later, two and a half thousand years later. We're not going to Achashverosh the third, Achashverosh the second. It's all, it's all Chinese to us. So what, what, we, don't, we don't know what we're talking about. So therefore he says, this is the Achashverosh who ruled from Hodu to Kush. Which is the second Achashverosh rather than the first. Now, there's, there's, there's a dispute in the Gemara between Rav and Shmuel. They say, was Hodu and Kush, were they right next to each other? Or were they far apart from each other? What's, what, 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 what is the issue over here? The thing is that, that if you want to give geographic borders or boundaries, you usually have to give us at least four points of reference. Because there's north, there's south, there's east, and there's west. If you want to talk about Ahasuerus' kingdom, you say it's from the north all the way to the south. Well, how about east and west? How, how wide did it go? You'll say it's, you know, how do we say in Canada? From, from sea to shining sea? Mm-hmm. That's, that's like a definition. We don't have to give a northern border because there is nothing else. At some point, there's only polar bears and snow. <laughs> so from sea to shining sea, that's, that's an easy way, which is actually, of course, taken from Tilim the Yerd, the Yom Ad Yom Adaf Siyaretz. It's taken from, from the book of Tilim. <laughs> when I was once at the Prime Minister, um, one of the rabbis was with me, said, he said, they get, we presented it with a book of Tillam. He said, from sea to shining sea comes from this book. He says, you know that, Mr. Harper. He says, yeah, I, know, I, have, one of the, I have a book very much like this in my night table. Said, <laughs> I, I know, I know we have a biblical past. So, so anyway, the, the, what, is, what is the business of the from Hodu to Kush? <coughs> this is why there's a problem in the from Hodu to Kush. The Ibn Ezra takes the approach that there was... There was, a, there was this Achashverosh who ruled on a vast majority of different places that were in between Hodu and in between Kush, which was means, he says that Modai and Poras, that Media and Persia, have to be north of Israel, and Hodu is, is, uh, and Kush have to be to the south. So we have this idea then, he says, you, you figure it out by yourself. We're, in, we're talking, our point of reference is Israel. So he says he's king in Persia, which is course to the north so we know he's north of Persia and he goes all the way down into the south into into Eurasia and the African continent this is this is uh, following the opinion of Shmuel who says that Hodu and Kush were right next to each other but we have the opinion of Rav who says that Hodu and Kush are very far apart from each other and that the Torah gives us a certain two points of reference to show us how large the country was so here the Rebbe says that, that the, the, the likely explanation of the different approaches is, is the Torah trying to give us a geographic location, meaning two disparate points, and telling us everything in between was controlled by this kingdom? Or, according to the other opinion, which is of Shmuel, that Hodu and Kush were right next to each other, then the message is that just as Hodu and Kush were geographically close, and therefore, they were, they were ethnically and sociologically and culturally very, very close to each other, that Achashverosh managed to pull together a kingdom that was very, very vast, but it was all like Hodu and Kush. It was all like 
the United States and Canada, we aren't that different. Two countries that are very close together. In many people's minds, they talk about North America. They don't even, they, 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 to them, it makes no difference. To them, Toronto and, 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 and Texas is the same thing. We know it isn't, but, you know, it's, 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 it's a figure of speech. So according to Shmuel, the emphasis was on the power. And this is, when you talk about it on a content perspective, it makes much more sense. Because geographically, we have a location which, which is only, only two ways. It only goes up on, on lines of, of, of longitude. doesn't tell us about the latitude. And that's why the Ibn Ezra is forced to say Persia is north, Israel is central, and this is south, so we get some kind of picture. But according to the opinion of Shmuel, where we focus on the content, the point was about how Ahasuerus managed to unite so many different kingdoms, which is the, along the lines of what we said before in the names of the or, name of the Orochayim. Sheva, the Esim, Umea, Medina, 127 provinces. Rashi says, why does it say Hamolech? It should say Hamelech. Hamolech is like dynamic. It's Hamolech. He is ruling, kind of like establishing his rule. His rule is unfolding. Hamelech means he was the king. So the beginning of the Megillah is introduced to us where Ahasuerus's kingdom where the empire of Ahasuerus is still in the state of gelling. It's still coming together. It's becoming the great big empire. Why is that? So Rashi says, Shemolach me'atzmo. Hamolach means he made himself into king. Velohoya mezera hamalucha. He was not of royal seed. He didn't have a legitimate le- claim to any throne, which we mentioned earlier. <coughs> We're soon going to see the Malbum develops this idea in a fascinating way. Nehodivat Kush, who ruled over 127 provinces, says Rashi, this is the, the, the kingdom of Ahasuerus, and he says, Nehodivat Kush, and Rashi follows not like the Ibn Ezra, who follows the opinion of Rav, Rashi follows the opinion of Shmuel, Sha'omdim Ze Eitzel Ze, which are one right next to the other. Now, by the way, that's why I started off by saying that I'm translating poetically or freely when I say one is India, one is Ethiopia. Because clearly, the Gemara is not arguing if Ethiopia and India are next to each other or not next to each other. These are ancient names. And, and if you know anything about how the world has unfolded, places of the world which are called a certain name today are not necessarily the same place that it was once upon a time called. Names have changed. Some of the names are the same names. Locations have changed. There are some cities which are ancient cities, but they have different names today. For example, there's a city in Iraq called Mosul. Most of us know, I've heard of that city because it's been in the news in the last decade. Mosul. Mosul. M-O-S-U-L, I think is how they spell it in English. Now, Mosul is only known by North Americans because of the, the, the war in Iraq. I, I certainly never heard the name Mosul before. But the, the city of Mosul, we are fairly certain, based on solid archaeological evidence, was once called Nineveh. Ah, that city you heard of. Famous story with Yonah. Nineveh was a capital city. Nineveh is one of those ancient cities that goes back to Mesopotamian times. So it's the same city, meaning people living in the same location doesn't have the same name. The amazing thing about our living in Eretz Yisrael is that we're living in Yerushalayim. We still call it Yerushalayim. And we still focus on the base of Migdash. And it still has the same flavor. That we still call the city of Hebron, Hebron. Now, when you talk about other places, other cities, which we know are ancient cities, where they don't necessarily read the Megillah on, on Shushan Purim, why not? Because we don't know if that's the location of the same city. Be'er Sheva is a city in Israel today. Be'er Sheva was a city at the time of Avram Avinu. We're not absolutely certain if Be'er Sheva of Avram Avinu is the same city of, of, of today. Haifa is a modern name. But the name of the city, we are fairly certain, was an ancient city, that was around when the Jewish people first came to Eretz Yisrael. What do we think the name of the city once was? Carmel. Because there is a mountain that still has that name. Called Har HaKarmel. We still call it Carmel Mountain. Now the question that is, are you supposed to read the Megillah there? My wife's uncle has an interesting answer from the Rebbe. They once had a, a conference of Shluchim in a, in a synagogue in, in, in Haifa called Beit HaKneset Har HaKarmel. The Rebbe underlined the word Har HaKarmel. And he wrote, Bo Koren HaMegillah Gam B'Shushan Purim. That's the place, a place, one of the places we read the Megillah on Shushan Purim also. 
And so from that time they got that answer, they started having a second Megillah reading on Shushan Purim too. And the chief rabbi of Haifa, once a year comes to Davin and the Lubavitch Shul, his name is Rabshar Yoshev Akoyen. Once a year he comes to Davin to hear the Megillah because maybe you have to hear the Megillah two days. Tzvat is an ancient city. Whether Tzvat is on the place where Tzvat is today, this we don't know. The name Tzvat is not mentioned anywhere. There is a mention in the Zohar, it says, Be'ara de Golil, in the Galilean city, which we have a tradition means refers to Tzvat, but we don't know these things for sure. The point I'm trying to make is, when you have a city like Hodu, people say, oh, Hodu, we know what Hodu, Hodu is India. In fact, <laughs> funny enough, turkeys are, are, are chickens, big chickens that grew in North America. One of the proofs that you know that it's a big North American thing is that on Thanksgiving Day, people eat turkey. Now, when Columbus came to North America, or actually he came to the Caribbean first, what did he think he was coming to? India. To India. So what do they call the name of that big chicken in Israel today? Anybody know? Tarnagol Hodu. <laughs> in other words, the turkey is called the Indian chicken in Israel because Columbus first thought he was coming to India. Now there is a place in the world called India. And in modern Hebrew, we identify modern day India with Hodu. But Hodu and India are not necessarily one and the same. Ancient Hodu may be a different place. In modern, in modern syntax, we refer to Ethiopia, which is a fairly small country and not a very powerful country, we identify it with an ancient country once known as Kush. Kush was a powerful country in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu. According to the Medrash, Moshe Rabbeinu was Melech Kush. Well, the Kush is actually Ethiopia. We don't know. Now, this is a perfect example. Here we have a story in the Megillah. We have places identified. He ruled from Hodu to Kush. Rav and Shmuel come along and say, Rav and Shmuel always have the same argument. The Rebbe points out, they always have an argument whether you, you, Rav is the literalist, Shmuel is more of the substance. He always didn't go for the style, went for the substance. It's like where there was a new king in Egypt. Rav says, a new king is a new king. Shmuel says, it wasn't really a new king. He made himself, he remade himself. Either way, he forgot history. He never heard of Yosef. Jews, what did they do for us? Now, the truth is, even if he was a new king, how could he be a new king in a country that doesn't know about the country's history? He doesn't know about this mighty monarch who was a king for, for decades? How could such a thing be? Either way, he had to remake himself. But Rav follows the more literal reading, and Shmuel says there's absolutely no reason to assume that. The point we're being made is he remade himself, so he remade himself. Same thing here with Hodu and Kush. Just, you should just know that it's not necessarily Ethiopia and India. To the best of my knowledge, Ethiopia and India do not border one upon the other. Modern-day Ethiopia and India, and it wouldn't fit either opinion of Rav or Shmuel, in fact, today, which kind of conclusively proves that ancient Hodu and Kush are necessarily not synonymous with what we tend to refer to as those places today. But uh, Kush is sort of uh, like Kushim, like black. So there were no black people in, in Persia, so that would place them in Africa. You are making a statement which is drawing on modern-day language to corroborate ancient facts, which is not necessarily correct. You're but saying but that Kush, you're saying that, was a that... Yes, uh, and Rashi says that means that she was so different, she was so more vastly beautiful than everybody else, that it was a black and white difference. So the notion that black people are called Kushim is, is a modern terminology. And Kush, Ethiopia, where you're saying, you're calling it the place where black people come from, it's a tiny part of Africa. Most of the people in Africa have very dark complexions. Interestingly enough, you, in modern Hebrew, the word kush might be identified with the same Latin term, negroid, which is not to be confused with a, a pejorative that people use. Now, negroid features are not found in Ethiopia because negroid features necessarily mean wider nostrils and thicker lips. And the people in Ethiopia happen to have very thin noses and very thin lips. So when you use the term Kush or Kushi in modern terminology and you try to superimpose it over the ancient map of the world, it doesn't work. So what we know for certain is that Ahasuerush was a mighty monarch. A mighty monarch with a vast array of provinces all under his control. That's what we know for certain. Okay, so now before we go further, I want to share with you some of the insight of the Malbun. Because this, this, this takes all of the things we learned, all the Midrashim, all the commentaries of the Rishonim, but it sews it together in a fascinating way. The Malbim, in his commentary, his tapestry of commentary on, on Megillah, he, he, he worded it not on commentary on Sukkim, he throws a bunch of questions at you. 
And then he introduces an idea that answers the questions and invariably helps you appreciate the text as well. He says, first of all, whenever it says, Vayahi, it's always referring to something known, a, a, a commodity which is famous. When this famous person did this and this. That's usually what Vayahi means. So for example, he says, like it says, Vayishvotashoftim. There was a time of the judges, and during that time, this is what came to pass. It's a logical thing, actually. Vayihi means it came to pass. When did it come to pass? In a certain famous time. So when we have an epoch in history, and we say, Vayihi, it came to pass within that framework. He says, how does that fit with what we talk about over here? And he says, Vayihi bimeh Achashverosh, when we don't even know who Achashverosh is, because we have to identify him. Oh, who Achashverosh? He's the Achashverosh. And why do we need that extra emphasis on the Achashverosh? And, and why are we talking about Ahasuerus' kingdom in a state of flux, in a state of development, in a state of growth? So in, in order to appreciate what's going on here, the Malbim says, the, you have to understand that in, in the ancient world, monarchies could be established in one of two ways. One way was that the people would choose a monarch. The people understood that they need to have governance. The people also appreciated the notion that governance cannot be a, 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 something that's run by many people. There has to be somebody calling the shots. As you all know, too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the broth. So who is the king? Who is going to be making the decisions? And they point a person and say, okay, this person is going to be the king. By means of example, in the country called Poland, during the, the uh, later Middle Ages and into uh, you know, the, the, the last few centuries, the pre-modern era, the Polish government was always run by a king, but the king was appointed by his peers. Every area, every province had a duke or a squire, and these dukes had their own personal armies, and they controlled all the farmers, the serfs. And these little provinces, who had their own little kingdoms, their own little fiefdoms, they would come together, and they would choose one of the dukes, the squires, and they would promote him to being the king, which is very much the way it was in ancient times. There was no dynasty in Poland. Then there was another kind of king. And that was the kind of king who established his monarchy by means of force. Alexander the Great was such a king. Alexander the Great inherited a tiny little country from his father Philip called Macedonia. Alexander the Great was a fearless person and a brilliant person and a very capable person. And he built the mightiest expeditionary fighting force in the world at the time. And he just went through village after village, province after province, and he captured the whole world. He captured the whole world. And he, he necessarily imposed Greek rule wherever he went. This, of course, is after the story of the Megillah, but it's just a, a modern story. There was a movie about it a few uh, years ago, so people could become familiar with this. You don't have to become an expert in history to know what Alexander the Great did. I didn't see the movie, but I'm presuming that the movie follows more or less the real story. That is the real story. Alexander, when he came to a place and established himself as the king, he didn't ask the people, what is the law of this land? He told the people what the law of the land is. When a dictator rises to power, he doesn't necessarily follow the norms of what has preceded him. He creates the norms. The Malbum says that there are five primary differences between the two kinds of monarchy. A monarchy which is chosen, an elected monarchy, not democratically elected, but an elected monarchy nonetheless, and a monarchy which is established by virtue of force. He says the person who is elected into a monarchy is put into a system. There is a law, and that's a law that's been in place for a long time, decades or centuries. It has, the country has a national bird, the country has a national tree. The country has a theme. The country has a motto. The country has an emblem. The king is, fits himself into that. He doesn't make all these things. He becomes a part of that. The second kind of king creates these things. Big difference. Therefore, the first kind of king has limited sovereignty. His sovereignty is limited by virtue of whatever the law, the powers that the law gives him. So whether he has an executive branch of government or a monarchical uh, branch of government, the, his powers are limited by whatever the laws of the land were before. 
He has to live within the framework of those laws. Whereas the king who is, establishes himself, he makes his own laws. Since when is that the law of the country? Since five minutes ago. That's how, that's how a dictator is. That's how you have, you have in, in, in today's day and age even, you have countries that have elected leaders who are basically dictators. I would, I would go on a limb to say that, uh, in, that Russia today is not necessarily a democracy anymore. If it was a democracy for a little while, it's probably not a democracy anymore. That, that, I mean, Putin basically is in control. So he had, to live, he had to work with the laws. So how did he work with the laws? He put somebody else as prime minister and he made himself the president. And then he switched it around. Now he's the prime minister, but he'll get back to president. And when he was the prime president, said the prime minister, who do you think was really running the country? Putin. He, that's what people have to call him Tsar Putin. Maybe it's good. I don't know. I don't know what's good or bad. It's, it's not important good or bad. I'm just saying that's an example. Then you had a lunatic like Gaddafi. Gaddafi, he made his laws as he went along. He rose to power. He basically took control of, of the country. And he made his own laws. What was the rules of Libya? Whatever Gaddafi said was the rules of Libya. That became the rules of Libya. You didn't like it, you were handed your head. And that's the way he, he held control over the people for a very long time. Because that's the case, in the first instance, the monarch is the leader of the country, but he is not the country. He is the leader of the country. The country exists before him and will exist after him. In the second case, <laughs> you know, Gaddafi's country doesn't exist anymore. They call that place Libya, but now it's in the control of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a, it's a, new, it's a new country today. It's not like they inherited the old, uh, the, it's called constitution or set of laws. It's like what's going on in Egypt today. It's, it's, today, supposedly, it's a democracy. I'm not so sure it is. But, but it's, it's the, the person who's the president of Egypt is trying to give himself executive powers, but he is being restrained by whatever kind of system they're trying to put in place. And there's like this tug of war going on as we speak in these, between these two forms of government. Another, another detail is that the person who, who, who therefore comes in does not have unlimited powers. He's always going to have to check with the local population. He has to always kind of look at the polls. He needs to be popular. If he's not popular, he has no political capital. He can't rule. You can't govern by force. If you are a hugely unpopular leader, when you were elected, you're basically going to be tranced out. He has to keep all the fiefdoms happy. If you, whoever his electorate was, if his electorate was ministers, he has to keep the ministers happy. If his electorate was the population, keep the population happy. If his electorate was the academia, keep the academia happy. If you go out of sorts with whoever your power base is, you're going to be gone. That's actually what happened in, 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 in Egypt. The power base was too small, so it crumbled. The second kind of king keeps nobody happy. He doesn't care about keeping anybody happy. All he wants to do is rule, and therefore he'll be ruthless. And anybody who stands in his way will be killed. So therefore, he establishes his rule by virtue of sheer force. And that sheer force knows no ends. The Malbim tells us Ahasuerosh was primarily the second kind of king. There was no empire that he stepped into. The empire that was had crumbled. There was vast amount of anarchy. Little countries and provinces were vying for independent control. Ahasuerosh stepped up. And by virtue of a very, very powerful military and his a domineering force, an unbelievable koyach, he managed to hammer together a massive empire. But he didn't occupy anybody else's seat. That's why he had to build his own seat. That goes to the medrash of building his grand throne. And then what happened? Now you're a king, you're appointed to, to a certain monarchy. So where's your, where's your capital? Wherever the capital is. You have to move to the capital. The prime minister gets elected, he can't make the capital somewhere else, he has to move to Ottawa. The president of the United States cannot move the, the capital to Hawaii, he has to move to Washington. That's the seat of government. You occupy that seat, but the seat stays in one place. Ahasuerus was a second kind of king. He says, okay, my chair can't move from there, fine, the capital now moves to Shush. Because of this, Ahasuerus, in order to solidify his power, he figured it would be a good idea to marry somebody like Vashti, so he had a little bit of political clout also, but that was a secondary consideration. And that's when Vashti started to get on his nerves and she started to remind him who he is, he got rid of her. Which explains to us why it says Hamolech. Hamolech means he's establishing his monarchy. Achashverosh, it took him a period of three years. 
And during, it's not like there was a, an, an empty seat which Ahasuerus was elected to, or Ahasuerus inherited. Ahasuerus had to create himself. He had to create this monarchy, and he did. In all likelihood, there was an enormous amount of ruthless executions, in all likelihood. In all likelihood, there was a tremendous amount of military force used. In all likelihood, he cut some, 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 some deals, backroom deals, and created alliances. But you have to understand that Ahasuerus was nobody's fool. When we say he was a fool, we say that he didn't have a, 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 an approach to life, a lucid approach to life. He didn't have a life philosophy. Like we said in the Gibara. Killed his, killed his wife because of his friend, killed his friend because of his wife. Ahasuerus had no mores. He had no, 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 no way of life. His way of life was, how do I stay in power? And whatever sounds right now to stay in power now, or whatever threatens my power, I have to get rid of. He saw Haman fall on Esther, that's it, he got rid of Haman. It must be a plot. He heard Vashti make fun of him, get rid of Vashti. That helps us understand what's going on over here. So Ahasuerus, and this now, when you, when you put this in the background of what the Ibn Ezra told us, of what the Arachayim told us, the idea that Ahasuerus is establishing himself, that it takes him a few years, that the Molech, how Ahasuerus built this mighty empire, and also the concept of how he hammered everybody together. When you are a monarch who occupies a preordained seat of leadership, you're not necessarily going to be able to hammer everybody together because everybody has, they're coming from different places. Ahasuerus said, I don't care where you're coming from. Here's where you're going to be coming from tomorrow. Here's the new country you live in. This is the new republic, this is the new empire. Everybody is going to pledge allegiance to Ahasuerus the Almighty and everybody's going to do everything I say. And he managed to unite this array, vast array of different kinds of people under a single banner. And then he created a new history for himself. And then he moved the, 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 he moved the, the throne and he moved the seat of government into this place called Shush, into the country, into the city of Shushan. Now we understand why Ahasuerus is making a party. Now everything makes sense. So he spends three years establishing his monarchy. Now he's got to curry favor with the locals. Says the Malbum, that's why the next verse is by Yom In those days when he's establishing his monarchy, he wants to make sure that the locals in his own city, in his newly chosen capital city, love him and then fawn over him and adore him. Now how should he do that? He makes them a fantastic party. He gives them whatever they want. Now they love him. He's our new beloved leader. It's like North Korea, you know, our beloved leader. He becomes the beloved leader. And that's how he does it. He gives out uh, trinkets to everybody to vote for him. In those days, his Pasuk says, When Ahasuerus sits upon his throne. So Rashi says, enormous amount of Midrashim, they give us background over here. Now we understand what Rashi is saying so clearly. It took him a few years. In those days, when his monarchy was established, remember, he didn't have a monarchy to inherit. There wasn't a pre-existing a pre, uh, empire. He hammered it together. He built it. When he finished building this and he became a formally established, that's when he decides to make... Where, where is this? Which was where? In the newly minted capital, ancient city, but newly minted capital of Shushan. Ah, at this point, now Ahasuerus is going to begin to curry favor with the locals to make sure that he's beloved by them. The, the Ibn Ezra says, What's by Yomim Ahim? First we said, is the klal. That's the general rule. Which time was this? Ahasuerus' rule. Now we're getting into the details. During which time of Ahasuerus' rule? And then he says, I will explain to you why it says Kesheves HaMelech, which really we, we kind of have already talked about and have already, already emphasized a great deal of why it's, it's, it, it t- talks about it in, the, in that terminology. The Gemara in Megillah says Kesheves HaMelech, and Rashi alludes this, he says the Gemara says it a little different, he says after the three years of Ahasuerus' ruling, Rava said, my Kesheves, after he became comfortable in his new skin minted this image for himself, he became comfortable now. He was, when he was comfortable in his skin, now he could act like a Vildechaya, now he could do crazy things. When you're, when you're still trying to be something, you can't act like yourself. Really, besides all Ahasuerus' other wonderful virtues and qualities, he was a party animal. 
So until he was really comfortable with himself, he wasn't ready to do what Ahasuerus wanted to do. But now that he establishes himself and everybody's under control, now we're going to have the real Ahasuerus. As the next passage says, third year of his ruling, also Mishta, he made a party. Who did he make the party for? L'chol Sarov, for all of his officers, principally the sounds like generals, people who work in the military. Avad of his servants, Chel Porasumadai, the armies of Persia and Media. Hapartamim, Vesari Hamidinas Partamim are some kind of ministers and, and other ministers of the land, Lefanov before them. The Ibn Ezra says, What is the business with this Mishta? Ibn Ezra says, Achashverish was a, a thoroughly wicked man. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar, who was the emperor of Babel, had destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. He knew that it was prophesied that Nebuchadnezzar's empire would be destroyed. He fully expected the star of Israel to rise again. And now, three years later, he, according to his calculations, marked 70 years from the exile. He said, aha, 70 years has passed. No Beis HaMikdash. No Mashiach. No return. Zerubovil went back there at Yisrael, but that was a dismal failure. The Beis HaMikdash's construction was halted. He said, okay. So the Jews have lost it. He said, now I'm ready to party. So this gives you a background, says the Ibn Ezra, of his anti-Semitism. How the Jews figured very, very prominently in his Weltanschauung. Not unlike a great-grandson of Haman's. You know, Hitler wants to be king of the world, but who is a major part of his ideology? It's the Jews. We're just a tiny percentage of humanity. We're always part of the bigger plan. You want to become king of the world? Do whatever you want. No, 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 the Jews. Achashverosh said, when can I make my party? Now that I'm convinced the Jews will never rise again. Now at this point, that's when he married Vashti. And now he said, now I know I have a shot at eternal greatness. I'm going to establish my thousand-year Reich. So that's why he made the big party. Who are the Partimim? The Partimim, says the Ibn Ezra, are not necessarily actual ministers. There are two kinds of ministers. There are ministers who have portfolios. And then there are people who are prominent by virtue of their high birth, at least in the ancient world, what we call nobility. So some of nobility was active nobility. And those are the Sari Hamadines. Hapartimim are the people with high birth, the Hollywood celebrities. The Ibn Ezra says, I don't know if this is a Hebrew word, or if this is a Persian word, because I didn't find it only in the book of Daniel, which is not necessarily written in Hebrew. So he says, I don't know what the word partimim is, but said, this is what it means. Now, the, the uh, Orachayim points out over here that this, the, this great feast that he made only in the Megillah emphasizes, only in the third year of his becoming the monarch, of his establishing his monarchy, that, that uh, everything here was very, very choreographed and everything was very, uh, very, very carefully placed. He says, look who Ahasuerus invites first. Who is his power base? Who does he have to please? The first thing is he raises his servants and his armies. So the military, this is a military uh, country now. It's a military coup. A king who rules by force has to keep the army very, very close. Incidentally, just to use modern examples, Mubarak staffed all the senior uh, echelons of the army were all of his family, or all of his close, of people who were close to him. How is it that uh, Mubarak fell so quickly, but his, uh, his uh, monstrous cousin in, in, in Syria is still able to kill thousands of people and still maintain control? How is Assad staying in power so long? Because he comes from a tribe called Alawites. And the Alawites are very loyal to each other. And they all know that if he falls, all the Alawites are finished. They're a tiny percentage of the country. So he took all of the senior leadership of the army, all the generals, all the deputy generals, all the major generals, all the sergeants, everybody who has a, a position. I think it's, I actually read this somewhere, from the, a certain rank and up, you have to be an Alawite to get that rank. And in doing so, he hoped to protect himself. So if the, the generally armies are, 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 have a lot of discipline. So the, off, the people always listening to the officers. To get into officer school, you have to have certain parents. Therefore, they would be loyal to him. Not only because they'd be loyal to him, they'd be loyal to themselves. Because if Assad falls, Alawites are falling out of power. So therefore, he controlled the army. And actually, to some degree, it's worked for him. He's in power for two years. When Mubarak fell after, after weeks, and he's still in power. Because he did that. So Ahasuerus is the same concept over here. He made sure the party was for the officers, for the generals, for the army, 
for the people who are loyal to him. He rewarded the people loyal to him. And at the end comes the nobility. Usually the nobility is first. The celebrities always come first. They were at the end. His popular support was much less important to him than his power, his power base. That was the main, the main emphasis over here. As the Malbim puts it, he says, what did he make this party for? It doesn't say what he made this party for. It just says that he invited the officers and the army. And he says, you would think that nobility and ministers come before servants. It says in the Megillah, Avadov, and at the end it says, Sari Hamadinus. He invited the local governors, the local uh, premiers, only after he invited his servants. Who does that? So he explains, this is exactly what I told you. Because he was the kind of king who had to establish his monarchy by himself, therefore he made a party now to be able to curry favor with the people whom he needed for his power. Who does he need first? The first thing is the armies in place. Sarav, Avadav, his loyal servants, the, all the armies, the armies of Tzavaparasamadeh. Afterward, afterward he took the nobility. Afterward he took the people of high birth, people who had been connected previously to some kind of monarchy or some kind of royal family. And he did not owe them anything. They didn't elect him. They didn't necessarily like him. They were terrified of him. He had the power. So they came to his party. And, and, and this gives you a perspective on how Ahasuerus was able to do what Ahasuerus did he was an absolute monarch. He didn't have to fit himself into anybody else's program. He made the program. And what did he do? What was this party all about? This party was about me. Behar Oto to show how wealthy he was. So he was going to bring everybody over on the side by overwhelming them with displays of wealth and opulence. Power. Money is power. He's going to show them all his money. How great he was, how awesome he was. Yomim Rabim, many days. Shmonim Oma'at Yom, 180 days of partying. It's a serious party. It's <laughs> a serious party. Rashi says, Yomim Rabim, Asalahem Mishter. He made the party for many days. Now, what is Rashi trying to say? Obviously, he, this is talking about a party. So the Sitzchachom says, it's not. Yomim Rabim Shmonim Umeat Yom. Because how, 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 how many times could he show his greatness? 180 days, 180 parades? Every day he was marching around all of his weapons? The party went for many days. He didn't, he showed as much as he could, in as much time as he could, and the party lasted 180 days. It doesn't mean he showed his greatness for 180 days. It means there was Mardi Gras for a long time, for a, for a good half a year, in, in, in the town of Shushan. Who did he invite? What was the ultimate intention and goal? Ah, this is already a different story. So just a quick point out that Rishon Litzion says that Ahasuerus' intentions here were, were twofold. Number one is that he had to get the people in power in place. Number two is he had to show the people in power who is really in power. And that's why it says Lifnehem. He brought all the ministers and he showed them his power base. He rallied all his armies, he brought all his generals, he brought all his senior officers, he brought all his loyalists, and he showed everybody else who had some kind of perceived power, look who's in control here. That's the word, that's how the, the Arachim says, that means the word lifnehem. Bahar also, he was showing this glory to who? Lifnehem. And that's the meaning of the word lefanov. Sorry, Hamadinis lefanov, that they should see what's going on before him. That was the reason of the party. So the party was, as the Orachaim puts it, less to curry favor and more to send a very clear message. Look at me. Look who I am. Look at the power that I am going to be wielding. As the Malbim emphasizes this in his commentary. He says, based on everything we said before now, now we have to understand that mighty leaders, people who want to have might, they establish their might by huge displays of power. What did they used to do in, in the Soviet Union? Parades with missiles and weapons and armaments. Did you ever see that in Canada? <laughs> we don't have any <laughs> missiles and weapons. <laughs> it wouldn't look like much of a parade probably. You know? We'd have to take the six tanks we have. <laughs> 
shouldn't make fun of our own country. We do have a good army. The point, of course, is that people, megalomaniacs, do these kinds of things. Ahasuerus is a megalomaniac. And he has to show everybody how powerful he is. He says, this is Osher. Harot Torah et Osher Kvod Malchuto. This is my kingdom, not your kingdom. He said, this is not the, look at the wealth of the empire. And yes, I am the king. He said, no, this is my kingdom, my power, my. It's all about the emphasis as kvodo, malchuto. That's what he was showing everybody. And in doing so, he set out to do this day after day. It wasn't one day, it wasn't two days. It was yomim rabim, many days. And that's how he showed that he was going to establish his monarchy. And, and, and just to show that he was a nice guy and he was going to have fun, he made a party too. So the party lasted for, <coughs> pardon me, that full 180 days. I'll finish off with a little, last little vart um, from the Rebbe's teaching on these first psukim of the Megillah. Now we go back to revisit the business of Mehod Duvayat Kush. Now we understand Ahasuerus' approach to everything. His, his, when the Megillah says, Mehodavad Kush, the Rebbe says it wasn't just geography. It's, it shows you the, the philosophy or the strategy that Ahasuerus employed. The strategy was going to be to overwhelm with displays of might and power so that everybody who was in control in smaller places could be brought to a power base, could be awed, could be bowed into, brought into bowing to submission, and then he goes home and he has everybody unified. So this 180 days was about unifying the 127 provinces through his displays, through his megalomania. Now we understand the order of the Megillah. As Kishavah Samelech, the Megillah starts, Hamolech, who's developing his, his monarchy over 120 provinces. And in those days when he finally managed to reach it to a tipping point, what does he do? Then he brings everybody together and he begins his megalomaniacal displays in order to ensure that everybody is on the same page. And that sets the stage. Now we have an understanding of who Ahasuerus is, and this gives us the background for what will unfold as the story of Purim. But the beginning is the historic background, and we see the historic background through the lens and through the, the prism of Ahasuerus' kingdom being established. And next week we'll talk about the party itself. Well,